Okay, so John 18, 28. Um, this is the middle of Jesus' trial now. Uh, for those of you who are listening online, uh, we're toggling back and forth because there's somebody in the class who really would like to be here when we discuss John 17. So we're kind of shifting around a bit. Verse 28, uh, Kristen, why don't you read uh, verses 28 to 32. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. So we did read this last time. I remember now because I mentioned how determined they were to be ritually pure, and yet here they are shedding the blood of the Son of God. I mean, it's just yeah. total irony. But um, Pilate uh, is kind of weak and vacillating, isn't he? He was under a lot of pressure. Yeah, he was. I mean, at the time, uh, the Roman Empire was probably at its height, right? We're somewhere in the Pax Romana. And there were some of the evidence suggested that there's... In the entire known world, there was approximately 28 legions to enforce the Roman Empire, but only one in all of Judea. Mm -hmm. So he was significantly outnumbered. Mm -hmm. And he was warned, no more uprisings. Mm -hmm. So he's under pressure. It's the pressure, though, that determines what kind of character we have, isn't it? <laughs> um, it is it is uh, it is the truth we don't know who we are inside mm -hmm. we don't know our strength or weakness until we're put under pressure uh, so why is it that Pilate or why the, I, I should say why is it that the Jews are not permitted to put anyone to death the Romans had taken away that right. Uh, uh, once uh, the Jews were under other, other domination, which happened starting with the exile, okay? The exile, they're under the Babylonians. After the, after the, uh, the Medes and Persians take over, they are then under Medo-Persian law, and then under Greek law when, the, when Alexander the Great conquers, and then under Roman law. And, and particularly the Romans would not allow them to just put anybody to death for political reasons. And please, and, and, and note, they did put people to death. They put women to death for adultery in the time of Jesus. They stoned, the. I think they stoned and burnt the daughter of the high priest who was promiscuous, or at least they deemed she was promiscuous. So they did put people to death, but apparently the Roman Empire didn't care about women, which would make sense if, from everything I've read about how women were treated. 
But um, my understanding is that if they put him to death for blasphemy, according to their law, they would infringe on Romans on Rome's right, and particularly because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Though that question, the question of whether he really claimed that openly, is is a good question, you know, because Jesus is very veiled in what he says. But he did tell his disciples that he was the Messiah. This is a political issue now, and they certainly can't infringe on Rome's right to deal with political prisoners. But why does John say this was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die? This is the last verse, 32. In terms of being crucified on the cross, isn't, isn't that um, what um, Freston was just talking about, that Jesus was just hiding on the cross? Right. But why is... Why is uh, why is the, the Jew saying we, we can't put him to death indicate what kind of death he's going to die? Kim? Did it have anything to do, it's somewhere in Psalms signifying the kind of death that he would die with his hands and his feet? Yeah, so it yeah, it was to fulfill that prophecy, but how does the Jews saying we are not permitted to put anyone to death, how does that fulfill that? They would have stoned him. They would have stoned him, that's exactly right. If the Jews had put him to death, they would have stoned him. Crucifixion was Rome's was was the kind of punishment Rome would use. So uh, Deuteronomy twenty one twenty two and twenty three probably. Yeah, it does talk about hanging someone from a tree. Uh, that would be hanging from the neck, uh, like regular hanging. Mm. That is not crucifixion. A crucifixion was invented by the Romans, is my understanding. But the typical way of punishment for, for the Jews was stoning. And that's because in, Jew, in, in, Israelite, in the Israelite community, and this seems to have been established by God because we don't have any evidence of any other culture stoning people to death in the ancient Near East. This is unique to Israel. Apparently, God wanted all Israel to participate in putting someone to death so that they would recognize not to do that again themselves. It was, it was like, and it was also a way of establishing corporate responsibility. When one member of the community goes astray, we're all guilty and we have to deal with that. It seems harsh to us. Stoning is not pretty. But neither, then neither was crucifixion. Almost any punishment used in the ancient Near East is not pretty. But it seems also like that God also wants to show that um, capital punishment isn't to be taken lightly as well. Right. As well. right. You're all participant. That, that memory stays in your mind of what you did to another human being, and that's supposed to call you to repentance for your own culpability. Yet, unfortunately, what happened in Israel is that hardened the heart. They became callous and not emotionally involved anymore. All right, let's uh, move on. Uh, Peter, would you read verses 33 to 38? 33 to 38. Pilate then went, 
then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. Okay. What version are you using? NIV. NIV. NIV is very interpretive. Indeed. With a heavy <laughs> Catholic influence. Um, actually, it's Protestant. Very, very Protestant. But it's evangelical Protestant. But it... I'm going to redo verses 37. I guess it is just verse 37. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You, emphatic, say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. The NIV glosses this to indicate that, that Pilate is right and that Jesus is simply endorsing his words. But Jesus doesn't buy it. He says, you said it. And in the Greek, it's very emphatic. Yeah, the Geneva says, thou sayest that I am, thou sayest that I am a king. You could say, the, the Greek emphasis, keep in mind, every verb has a U in it. Every verb that's second masculine singular has a U embedded in it, okay? So you don't need to say U twice unless you're paying emphasis. Uh, but the U is twice. It's in the verb and it's, it's separate. It has a separate pronoun. And so that means that this is the point of evidence, emphasis. And you could translate it, it is you who say <laughs> that I am a king. Mm-hmm. This is your view. view. Yeah. But, and you could almost say, but for this I was born. Because to testify the truth is not what kingship does. It's the opposite of what kingship does. Kings don't tell the truth. Do they? <laughs> Do politicians <laughs> tell the truth? I mean, you can say for kings, whatever they say becomes truth because whatever they say becomes law it becomes uh, yeah but that now they're inventing now they're inventing a human made reality rather than the real reality who then is identified as the king of kings and the lord of lords well originally that was only used of nebuchadnezzar by daniel in daniel 
we're the only place in the Bible where God is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is Revelation. And Revelation is speaking Babylonian to the Babylonians. What, what to me in this passage is so clear, Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. So he doesn't like the word king because it has with it all the entrapments of an earthly monarchy that doesn't tell the truth, that creates a fraudulent reality, and that uh, is, is doing power over instead of power under. Fraudulent reality. Fascinating. Uh, so what then is the name of the kingdom of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? The name of the kingdom? What, is, what do you think it is? Is it a spiritual kingdom? Isn't that the nature of the kingdom? It's not an external forceful kingdom like we have on earth. It is the kingdom of the heart. Look at um, Mark 10, where Jesus gives the manifesto of the kingdom. 42 to 45. Remember, the disciples are constantly wanting to be first in the kingdom. They imagine Jesus sitting on a throne and one disciple is going to be at his right hand and the other at his left hand. And they all want that coveted position of power. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John because James and John were asking for that position. So Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. That's power under. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Power under. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus' kingdom. So Jesus exhibited his kingdom on the cross. And that's why, if you read, look at Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, Trustworthy and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. I was just reading this morning. God's righteousness is his holiness, and his holiness is his love. Thoughts in the Mount of Blessing uh, gives a tremendous description of what righteousness is. And, and of course, it's obeying the law, and the law is love. And she goes on and on, everything equates with love. So you could say, in love he judges and makes war. Uh, and how does he make war? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Is that the blood of people he's killed? That's his own blood that he has shed. And his name is called the Word of God. Not king here, but Word of God. And the armies of heaven wearing fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Why is that sword coming from his mouth? Because it's the word. And, and Paul, in, in uh, what is it, Ephesians 6, the sword, which is the word of God. And so he strikes down the nations by the word. How does that work? 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name inscribed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords isn't opposite to the name also that's on his thigh. Let's see, where is the word? And his name is called the Word of God. But then the, his, the, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name inscribed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it's the Word, the Word of God that is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The, I'm, I'm looking at this from the vantage point of the entire Bible, which over and over and over again go, opposes kingly power. Over and over again opposes dominion, opposes power over, opposes hierarchy. Uh, from Genesis to Revelation, there's just a, a you, could, you could just amass a whole line of scriptures that do that. Sometimes subtly, sometimes very blatantly. So, when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he is saying, it's not because I have more power than everybody else and I'm going to use that power like everybody else uses it. It is that the nature of my kingdom is not of this world. So is the name of his kingdom the everlasting kingdom? Well, that's what it's called. That's attributive. I wouldn't call that a name, but it's attributive. In other words, an attribute of his kingdom is that it lasts forever. A kingdom that will not pass away. Right. But you remember, the rock cut out in Daniel 2 without hands. Every translator adds human hand to those hands. But in the Hebrew, sorry, the Aramaic. <laughs> in the Aramaic, it is simply hands. And one of the meanings of hands, if you look in a lexicon, is power. When you give the, something into the hand of someone, you give it into their power. This is a rock cut out without power. And it smashes this, this image. The image isn't people. The image is kingdoms. The image is powers and authority. It smashes that authority. And it grows. This is a dynamic mountain. I mean, a dynamic rock. It grows and grows until it fills the whole earth. That's why his followers aren't called to fight. And that's why Jesus says to Pilate, If my kingdom were of this world... What's the most natural thing you do when you are fighting, when you are trying to preserve the life of your king? You are going to go out and fight. You are going to use weapons and force. And that's why it's because God's kingdom is not of this world that his followers are persecuted and why they have to emulate the lamb and die, be willing to die for what they believe. So he says, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify for the truth. This is the nature of my kingdom. It's the word. It's the truth. I came to testify to the truth. And what is the truth he came to testify to? According to John, it's to reveal the Father. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. That's how his kingdom works. That's how he conquers how he conquers is through the truth. I, I'm going to use a strong word. He ravishes the heart. He wins trust. He gains allegiance. So Pilate asked him, what is truth? I like where he says, 
everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Mm-hmm. It's an allusion back to that parable um, with the uh, was it the sheep and the goats parable, where the the sheep they hear his voice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually John ten. I am the good shepherd. The my the, the sheep hear my voice. Yeah. Because they recognize his voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But interesting though, you know, back in uh, what was it, John? Was it five? Uh, maybe eight? Where the children of the devil, they, the Jews, they did not know, or did they have conscious awareness that they were children of the devil? Well, Jesus, Jesus refers to them as, "You are of your father, the devil." Doesn't he? that's in John eight? where he refers to them as uh, you are my father the devil. Kim? Um, I just, sorry, I was trying to look it up. The, uh, where you're talking about how he ravishes the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, in Song of Songs uh, 4-9, he talks about that same kind of thing with when he's talking about his sister, his spouse, and how... Uh, his beloved has ravished his heart. We have ravished his heart, his church. Mm-hmm. So his heart, he not only ravishes us, but we, his love and what he right. wants for us as we a respond, church. We respond reciprocally. Right. Uh, okay, so, um, uh, Christian, would you read verses, uh, the last half of verse 38 to 19, verse 7. And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Imagine God putting himself in that position. Where... They can beat him up, and they can go up to him and strike him on the face. And if you were, sta- if we were standing there at the foot of the cross, would we think this is this is God submitting to all this? He's not like any other de- any other God that's been described. He isn't like any other God that's ever been described. No other God would take that kind of abuse. I, I'm I, the the thought flashed in my mind. You know, uh, I teach a class called God and Human Suffering, and one of the biggest issues my students have 
in that class uh, with God is why doesn't he do something to stop suffering? I mean, surely he could see that car coming toward the other person who's innocent because they're not drinking, but the driver of the car coming toward them is drinking uh, or has been drinking, and he's going to hit them head on. Why doesn't he do something to stop it? And here's God, and, and to me this is an answer to that question. Here is God submitting to hell, to torture, to cruelty, to total disdain and flaunting of his authority, and just taking it, silently, taking it. Like the lamb for the slaughter, sheep for the slaughter. But it, to me it's only impressive if, if Jesus was just a lamb, he's just a human being, and, and he's going through this as a human being, as a human sacrifice. That doesn't have nearly, that doesn't command my amazement and my awe and my reverence and my worship. Like thinking that that's God in human flesh. Allowing his subjects to treat him this way. When he could stop them. Hmm. But because he was who he was, he refused to stop them. Well, and because that God isn't the kind that uses force. For compelling power is found only under Satan's government. And here we really see who Jesus is. I think so. Because, you know, this is... When the chips are down... Yeah. When the chips are down, and, and only the discerning, only those whose hearts have been won to the love of God through Jesus can discern that. So they, uh, uh, Pilate says, look, I'm bringing him out to you let, to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And he's just been scourged very cruelly. He can probably barely walk. So he comes out, blood streaming down his face, scream, streaming down his back, staggering, pale, emaciated. He looks anything like a conquering king, doesn't he? And all when they see him, all they say is, crucify him, crucify him. There's no pity there. There's no uh, response of horror of what they've done. So Pilate says, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. And of course he knows the Jews have no power to crucify Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he claimed to be the Son of God. This is where law, this is where the whole legal model reaches its height. Oh no, I'm going to say it's depth. It's depth of insanity. Keep in mind, the legal model is a substitute for real relationships of love and trust. So it's an artificial, contrived, humanly contrived way of trying to keep people in line and try to get my rights and my property and my this and my that. It's a very self-centered institution.
and those who have the biggest self seem to rule it like a tyrant. So here it is, working out its nature. When the law becomes more important than people, and the law becomes more important than God, because Jesus is God, we know that the law is busted. We have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he is claimed to be the Son of God. They can't hear themselves. They can't, they can't stand, stand back and say, what if he is the Son of God? <laughs> what are we doing? These are the same children of the devil? Mm-hmm. I'm going to be confused. They confused Jesus the thief with you know, Jesus the Son of God. They would prefer, they, they, would prefer. they would prefer a thief. And, and here's the thing. Their law, their wonderful righteous law has turned them into criminals, has it not? Kim? Um, in Desire of Ages, um, Ellen talks about um, that there were actually demons there impersonating. Uh, they were actually people. Um, they took human form. Mm-hmm. So... She says that at the cross. She doesn't say that in conjunction with the trial, so it's hard to know. I see. However, she does say that in the crowd of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, were demons. Yeah, she does say that. Yeah, that's what I I thought. Were those the ones, or were they actually, I mean, or was it a combination of demons and was. I think it was the chief priests that said, we have a law, and by his law, our law, he must, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. I think, I think it was the humans uh, saying that. But she brings up a really good point because there's really no difference today. Demons in the midst. Just as then, so it is today. And the other study that's quite interesting... When we get to Revelation, every every foul and unclean spirit become the habitation of, suggesting that the demons, whatever that third of angels are, the population of the earth at that time would become the full habitation. So there was one-to-one habitation, whereas during the time of Jesus, one legion would occupy one person. Mm-hmm. So interesting, one of those Friday night Vesper studies. Habitations are that's significant. It's a really good point, Kim, if you can hear me. We are, let's see, we have five minutes, so maybe we can get through to verse 12. I'm going to go ahead and read this. Now, when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. You understand from a Roman perspective, this sounds pretty scary. <laughs> he entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus, this is power over coming face to face with power under. Jesus answered him, You would have had no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Think of Jesus trying to excuse Pilate to the best of his ability. That's how gracious he is. So we, this, this raises, of course, a question. 
is Hitler exonerated for all that he did because God gave him the ability to rise to power? Similar, like, uh, was Pharaoh not the servant of the Lord? Uh, God, God certainly used him to show his glory, his stubbornness. But uh, I think it's been made clear that God did not manipulate him. He acted on his own reconnaissance and his own stubbornness of heart. And God used that for his glory. Mm, this is fascinating. So then, <clears throat> at some point then, we have those who attend the wedding banquet, those who come from the east and the west, the north and the south, will sit down and take their places at the wedding banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there will be those who are cast into outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or the Geneva says, utter darkness. And what exactly is outer darkness? Outer darkness means that inside the Jerusalem there's this light. Everything's light. Outside is darkness. That's how I, my understanding of it. So then maybe the Lord gave us a taste of what that kind of darkness is in the ninth plague of Egypt. Darkness that was felt. Or the Septuagint, at least the Charles Thompson Septuagint says, darkness that was palpable. Touch it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think we're getting a little bit off topic, but I think that um, Jesus, Jesus is saying God is ultimately in control, but He is not controlling. So He allowed Pilate to be here at this place in time. In hopes, is it not? Isn't God trying to save everyone? In hopes that He would take a stand. I take no death in the pleasure of the wicked. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so then, from then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, "If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor." Uh, well, that kind of dug into Roman law, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, they, uh, they are really ready to be Romans. Mm-hmm. They are ready to, to actually rescind their national status before God just to get rid of Jesus. Isn't it, isn't it later that they, the pilot asked them that, like, about crucifying their king and they said they have no king but Caesar? I'm not sure if it's in John. But that kind of just yes, it is. It, I think it's at this point. juncture that that's they say we have no king, but Caesar, or but the emperor. They've dug themselves in pretty deep. Completely relinquished everything. Everything. Yeah, yeah. And you know, when you think about this, this is a trajectory. Some people call it the slippery slope. I, I don't like that term because it sounds like um, you step down, take one step, and you go to the bottom. A trajectory is where you, you make a decision that's bad. You take a turn. And that leads you to tend to make another decision that's even worse. 
and then you take another step, and, it, and it's, a, it's a logical progression, really. You'd, at all, every point along the way of making those decisions, you think uh, things, I, I, this is right, this is right. And it, ultimately, you end up down here, maybe at the end of this trajectory, and you look back and you go, you know, back here, I never would have thought I would end up here. Mm-hmm, indeed. Because you kill something off. Isn't the suffix I-D-E to decide? Doesn't that come from the Latin, which means to kill off or murder? I-D-E, like pesticide, miticide, you see? So decide rather than a choice. Interesting. So so what I see them is just step by step. Their hatred of Jesus is a rejection. It's built on a rejection of his love. They see his love as weakness. They see his kingdom, the spiritual nature of his kingdom, as, as just not at all something they want. They want power over. They don't want power under. So, mm-hmm. here we are at the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus. And the question is, what are we going to decide about his kingdom? I'm going to leave it there. So time is up. Father, we stand at the foot of the cross in awe that you are the king who is everything but like a king as we know kingship. We ask that uh, you will place your kingdom in our hearts, that you will call us and that we will answer, and that we will become a part of your kingdom. Ravish our hearts with your love, that we might in turn love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.